Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jeffrey and Lane Crowther. It's uh, July 25th, 2018. We're at their home in Amity. Uh, and we're going to start by asking you guys both, why wine? That's a good question. I think uh, <laughs> when we were uh, dating, we uh, fell in love with uh, trying wine. And back in those days, this dates us a bit, uh, it was things like uh, Blue Nun and uh, Matus and uh, Lancers. And uh, so that's where a lot of people our age started. And uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, Lane had a birthday. And I had a college professor that uh, knew a lot about uh, uh, French wine. And I asked him for some suggestions. And he, uh, uh, he turned us on to this wine. He said, bring me $12. I bring $12, which was a lot of money in those days to us. And I get this bottle of wine. I take it home. She prepares a nice meal, and I help a little bit. And we open the wine, and we stopped eating. It was unbelievable. It was like an epiphany. Uh, and we remember it. 1966 Chateau La Lagune of Bordeaux. That kind of ruined, ruined our life. That ruined it. Ruined our entire life. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, expensive all the way up the hill. <laughs> but yeah. And after and that, we, we started we just experimenting. Got, I don't know. We got a little up the. Yeah. We started experimenting with other uh, other wines and fell in love with Burgundy, and that's uh, that's kind of how we wound up in Oregon eventually, is uh, our love of Burgundy. But Jeffrey started making wine in our backyard in LA um, in 1988 and we had a crazy guy we were part of a a wine club and this guy would drive up to Oregon bring back everybody's cachet of grapes he didn't stop he'd drive up pick it up drive back and that's you're talking 16 hours each way and then we would all go and collect our fruit and then we would go home, and we had this stainless steel fermenter that we had built in the backyard. And I'd wash my feet. He'd carry me out and say, stomp. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we. Bob Seeger. Bob Seeger. We had to have Bob Seeger yeah. on. I had some, needed some inspiration. But, um, and, and, but you know, that's when. Well, our our very first wine was Chardonnay. It was excellent because we were picking grapes at... Justin. Justin in... Paso Robles. Paso Robles. (laughs) See how how it works. Um, And it was the first time we'd ever picked grapes. And so we're we're picking and we're looking and picking. And we're in a very ripe section. And the crew is coming through. And they ushered us out sent us over to a brand new area because they weren't there yet. So we had this very ripe fruit and this very young fruit. Mm-hmm. He made a fantastic Chardonnay. And I thought, okay, this is where we're headed. And then the next year he says, no, 
I want to make Pinot Noir from Oregon. I said, but that's the heartbreak grape. He said, yeah, that's why I want to make it. <laughs> so that's kind of been our role since 1989, I guess. Right. But uh, we bought our property up here in uh, 1997 uh, mm -hmm. and then planted uh, the south uh, over that way in uh, 1998 and the north in 2000. And we've been commercial since 2002 and uh, been having a good time, living yeah. the dream. Very small vineyard, one hectare, 2.4 acres. and. Uh, We've enjoyed, uh, we've enjoyed the ride. It's been oh, I fun. couldn't handle any more than that because we, our, our spacing is so tight. Um, on that one hectare, I have people say, you guys have any children? Say, yes, 5,553, and they're all in that one hectare. That's a lot of kids. And um, so we get a, a decent yield, even though it's such a small area. Um, but it's not, well, well our, our spacing is five and a half Jeffrey feet between rows and one meter between plants, so it's, it's almost 2,400 vines. It was nuts in the beginning. You only wanted, what, one cluster of shoot? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> that but, changed. Yeah. You learn as you go. So let's talk about when you got started. Uh, how did you go about learning winemaking in the very beginning? What, what, what prompted you to want to do it yourself? Well, we, uh, we belonged to this interesting wine club that uh, uh, we had some really bright guys that uh, studied chemistry and all sorts of things. And, and so the group would get together, and if somebody had special knowledge, they would uh, they'd gladly share it with everybody else. And then I also would... Uh, take uh, weekend seminars up at Davis. I'd drive from LA all the way up to Davis, do a weekend seminar, drive back late Sunday, and uh, be at work Monday morning. So uh, it, it was a little nutty. But uh, learned a lot through uh, going to those seminars. And uh, uh, being a home winemaker, uh, you, you make a, uh, so many mistakes, and you learn yeah. so much from your mistakes. When you get up and you're actually working in a, a commercial winery, it's so much cleaner, it's so much it's better easier. temperature control. Well, uh, it's, well it's, we, we it, built what we called the pit because LA, you've got triple digits. Mm -hmm. Red wine doesn't like that. And so we built this pit um, under one of our patios and we had a pulley system so we would pull the barrels up and down, but that meant somebody had to be up, somebody had to be down. Neither one was a good place to be. <laughs> but um, that's how we, we kept it cool. And when it got really hot, we'd go, we'd have pour a glass of wine and go down and sit in the pit with our barrels. <laughs> it was the coolest place in LA. But um, so, like Jeffy was saying, you learn to improvise a lot when you're a home winemaker. And so it, I don't know, would you say it's a lot easier in a winery? I think so. And, and I, but you already know what you want to do. It's not like somebody has to lead you. Um, and, and your grapes haven't driven uh, 
uh, 16 hours in an unrefrigerated uh, truck. Right. So that, 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 that helps make better wine too. Uh, but the uh, reason we came to Oregon is interesting. Lane uh, worked for uh, 20 years with Bon Appetit magazine, which was based in uh, Los Angeles. And she came up to Oregon on a press trip in the 80s and fell in love with Oregon. And it took her a little while to convince me that uh, this would be a great place. I was, I was worried it'd be too cold for me. So I don't like uh, like it when it's really cold. <laughs> here, here we are being interviewed. It's 95 degrees outside, uh, and uh, so we went back and forth. We'd come up during the summer. It's beautiful up here. Uh, then one time she was working uh, out of the country uh, on a project, and I came up here January when it was uh, uh, cold, uh, rainy. In fact, I think it's the year the Willamette uh, flu. Uh, expanded so much it came over uh, 99. So you had to go around the river to get to uh, McMinnville. And we, I, I had the time of my life. It was so much fun. It was raining. It was cold. But it wasn't that Colorado cold where if your car breaks down in a pass, you have no cell phone coverage. You die. <laughs> uh, nobody comes along, you're dead. Uh, it wasn't that kind of cold, so we started looking for property. It took us a few years till we found About this little place. Two and a half years. I wanted a southeast slope, mm -hmm. and uh, thin, thin, uh, uh, jory or soil. Uh, Nakaya soil, and that's uh, <laughs> that's what we found. And I cleaned that one cool. up. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever consider staying, moving the California wine industry, or was it always was it always Oregon? We, we looked a little bit at the uh, Pinot Noir areas, uh, but none of the Pinot Noir turned us on. The Oregon, Oregon Pinots were a little closer to Burgundy, and uh, now, I mean, uh, the, so, some of the winemakers are doing some really, really interesting wines. So we have, we have the kind of bigger, fatter versions of Pinot Noir. We've got the really austere, lean versions. I think aren't, uh, aren't we up in the same latitude as Burgundy, I believe? Yes. And so, so there's a lot of parallels. Um, we don't have as much rain during the growing season, but we have a lot of similarities. So, no, I, I don't, we we looked in Napa. Napa was even back then prohibitively expensive. We had some friends that were pretty well healed. And we were going to go in with them to buy a piece of property. Couldn't touch it. Hmm. And that was... That was a long time ago. But, a long uh, time ago. But that was Cabernet. And that really wasn't uh, where our heart was. No. It, it, we ended up with Pinot because of you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and where else do you have great Pinot Noir grapes? You may have to edit this. I really don't think that Napa is a great place for Pinot Noir to grow. And um, so why would you want to go there and make Pinot? It's just a personal opinion. It's one that's been expressed in other interviews, too. I don't think it's terribly controversial up here. <laughs> Certainly not here. <laughs> So let's back up a little bit. You mentioned working at Bon Appetit. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background in sort of culinary uh, work and, and working for the magazine. Should I tell all of it? 
as much as you can. Do you, do, you, do you want me to give the quick overview? I like it. Okay, okay, you do it. Uh, I was, Lane was uh, getting into uh, uh, food while I was uh, uh, in law school, and she just had a nice uh, talent for it, and she took some classes with the Wolfgang Puck and. Uh, really and helpful. then when it uh, came time to take the bar exam, I, I told her, I, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to be kind of crazy and busy studying. Uh, so uh, I said, uh, I think you should go to uh, uh, France and study. So she went to Cordon Bleu uh, and she studied there, came back from Cordon Bleu and did a, a three-year apprenticeship program at the Century Plaza Hotel and then ran their uh, high-level kitchen wait, 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 wait. and then for wanted to take a break first and then went just just for a small break at Bon Appetit magazine and that lasted 20 years yeah. <laughs> but this is a crucial because this tells you my strife I was the first female apprentice in the 17 years of their apprentice program and the entire kitchen was European and they told me, well, I had one specific chef that did, really didn't like me. He was Swiss, this was, <laughs> they, they've got sugar on the brain. And he said, you're never gonna make it. And I said, um, what? I, I was a little more polite back then. And he said, you got three strikes against you already. You're an American, you're a woman, and you're too short. <laughs> and he's this much taller than I am. <laughs> and so I came home to Jeffrey. I said, if I'm going to make it, I've got to dig in deep because they don't want me here. And then they also told me, you know, uh, women shouldn't be in the kitchen because they had to wear aprons, you know, a little feminine. Um, and so I basically said, yeah, but you all grew up in your mother's cooking, didn't you? So it took a long time, but I earned respect throughout the other gentlemen in the kitchen. And so they would like try and come to my rescue and I'd say, I've got it. Um, the only time I didn't is it was, it would have been a bad situation for me because it was more than I could do. But um, other than that, I wanted to pull my own weight, you know? I, I needed to prove that it doesn't matter how small you are, doesn't matter what, you know, if you're male or female, you set your mind to it, you can do it, so. Anyway, just wanted to add that, because <laughs> it was very painful. It was painful. Well, you were as tall as a Scoffier, the renowned <laughs> Scoffier, yes. <laughs> So tell us how you ended up at Bon Appetit. I needed a break because uh, after I graduated from Century Plaza, I stayed on a, a year as a sous chef. But what happens is if somebody doesn't show up for work, you do your job and theirs. And it kept so that there were like maybe three people not showing up. So now I'm doing four people's jobs. And I, I, I I was burnt out, and I thought, I need some place to go and recover. Um, so I, um, I talked to some people that had some connections with Bon Appetit, 
got in and became their testing director. And then we finally, the food depart department finally talked them into letting the food department develop some of the recipes and stay, instead of paying these other people that would give us recipes that didn't always work, which meant we had to keep remaking them. And I said, we know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And they finally believed us. And uh, so the food department then started making, I'd say about 50% of their recipe content. Because mm -hmm. they didn't have to pay us. We were being paid. And they worked. So um, I would get a bonus from the guy. I don't remember. I don't, I don't want to remember his name <laughs> that, that owned, uh, uh, was before Condé Nast took over. Oh, Budnap. Oh, Budnap. We don't want to say that. Um, and, it, and I started getting bonuses, which made me really unpopular with the rest of the staff. I didn't say anything, but they would announce it because I was saving them so much money by doing this process differently. Sure. Anyway. So that was Bon Appetit. And I went to, to lick my wounds, and I didn't leave for 20 years. <laughs> so I guess I was pretty healed by the time I left. <laughs> any, any particularly memorable assignments or, or journeys in a, as part of that uh, time there? Well, the neat thing is that we, they, allowed, they rotated people, mm -hmm. but they allowed people to go on these press trips. And a press trip is usually sponsored by somebody else. Let's say olive oil from Spain, mm -hmm. olives from Spain. So we did olive oil, and the Madrid people sponsored that. And then we went to, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Madrid, it was Sevilla. And so then we did the, um, so then we went to Madrid, we did the olives. And when you're on a press trip, I mean, I'm sure you guys have been on similar trips. They own you every single second. Everything is planned mm -hmm. from the moment you wake up until you put your head down. And so I found those very, I mean, you, you're, you're getting so much information in such a period, short period of time. And so I loved, I loved that aspect. Those were the perks. Um, some of the other things were not so. I worked for a very nasty person. So anytime I could get out of the office was a good time. <laughs> but that's why I, I, I convinced them to let me start food styling for photography. Because that got me out of the office too. And um, it, was, it was a challenge, but it was, it was fun. It turned out I had a, a decent knack for styling. Um, but the challenge, food dies. So, and it, it can take up to eight hours before you get a shot. So it's, I, I would say to this photographer, take it, just take one for me. Just take one shot that I can take back to the office. And then you can tweak with your lighting, you can do whatever you want. Just give me one, sure. so I don't have to do it again. 
<laughs> but okay, that's my story. I'm done. <laughs> so let's talk about when you decided uh, on Oregon and you started searching for property and, and you found this place and started kind of started your 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 uh, construction. What were your initial impressions of the of the Oregon wine industry? Oh, it was small and it was new. Some of the pioneers had been here for a while, but uh, when we first got here, there, there weren't that many uh, uh, wineries and new people were coming in all of the time. It was, it was amazing. Oh, it's, it's erupted. Uh, yep, yeah, 1998, well, 2000, it, it, it was quite a small industry and everybody knew everybody. I think we had just about every wine that was produced at that time, but tried the wine, stayed at every single B&B &B up here on our trips up here. Now uh, they have B&Bs, people tell us about it. What? I've never heard of that one before. You, you should share with them the time when we were um, sitting at Dundee Bistro, having an early supper with Dean Sandifer and that fellow from California. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dean Sandifer uh, had a, uh, uh, a label here until the recession hit, called Domaine Coteau, uh, and a terrific guy. Most of the vineyards on this hill, as you drove up, uh, were developed by Dean, and we spaced our vineyard according to his, his specs of uh, five and a half feet by a meter and 18 inches uh, off the ground for the uh, rooting cane. Anyway, so Dean was kind of like the Pied Piper up here for quite a while. Uh, and every time we came up on a trip, we would, uh, we would meet him. And one time we were at uh, uh, Dundee Bistro, eating outside on a beautiful, beautiful summer evening. And uh, there was a chap sitting next to us, uh, uh, a single, and uh, he, he saw our wines out on the table and we started, uh, started chatting. And it turns out he was from Napa. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Dean uh, asked him a specific question about what he did uh, with regard to his winemaking process in California. It was a specific question. And the guy hemmed and hawed and said, well, you know, I, I, I can't say because that's a trade secret. And, and Dean said, uh, well, it, it, we don't have trade secrets up here. Everybody shares information. You make your own style of wine. But nobody has trade secrets and, uh, you know, oh, I have some special knowledge I don't share with people. He said, so if you're thinking about coming up to this area, you have the wrong attitude. <laughs> and I, I always thought that was so funny. I, I didn't realize that people had trade secrets in their winemaking. But uh, turns out Napa, they, uh, they do. That, that, was, that was pretty fascinating. I, uh, he wanted to sit with us, but he was afraid that we would delve too deep. Mm. Yes. So. Spies from Oregon. Oh, no, yeah. really. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned that the, the other vineyards in this hill were kind of all planted by, by Dean. Uh, did you have uh, a lot of neighbors making wine at that time? Were you kind of the first or in, in the area, did you have a lot of initial wine contacts? Well, Dean was the first. Well, and we were, we were coming here to check on the property because of the house in front. <laughs> um, and we, we were going by, and his car was there at, at his very first property. And Jeffrey said, I'm going to go talk to him. I said, honey, he doesn't know us from Adam. Let's not do this. 
And so Jeffrey said, I'm doing it. So he drives in, he introduces us. I have pencil and paper. And Jeffrey's questioning Dean about all this you know, specific stuff. And I'm writing everything down. I mean, we, we had knowledge, but certainly not knowledge of this area. So he was, he was our kind yep. of our guiding Bible. We were curious about you know rootstocks and clones and things like that. So we uh, we eventually uh, uh, planted uh, five different clones of Pinot uh, on our little uh, hectare, and we treat it as a uh, field blend, so that we don't keep them separate. Just all all goes in and gets co-fermented. That, that was kind of my idea. So except. I'm the master blender. Yeah, it is true. Sorry, <laughs> it's true. When it, when it comes time I, I and do the uh, to do the final blend of what goes into uh, uh, going to be our wine that we put our name on it, we're happy with versus wine we bulk out or whatever. Uh, Lane is yeah. Lane is the uh, the master blender. It has the final say on all of that. So that's pretty cool. Don't know how that happened. I, I think it's my palate. You got a palate. Yeah. Um, because everything to me, because I, I write all our tasting notes too, and everything has, it's, it's food oriented. It smells like this flower, or it tastes like that. Um, I, can't, I, I forget the, the, the wet dog and dirty saddle. Those are not the kinds of adjectives I would select. Because mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's all food oriented and um, uh, oh I'm, I'm forgetting his name from Wildwood the chef oh yes the chef from Wildwood whose name is escaping me right now <laughs> Corey Schreiber uh, Schreiber there you go he said whatever grows together goes together and I thought that's kind of kind of hokey but he's right because we have a lot of lavender around here. There's a lot of floral in our, in our wine. And a lot of things that, that we grow, they're, they're in there. I can, I, can, I can smell them and taste them. So I think he, and I, I think that it's a little more Oregon specific than some other areas. Because I think a lot of other areas, they're just vineyards. People don't live there, mm -hmm. and we live in the vineyard, and I do think it makes a, a difference. So, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Sounds reasonable. <laughs> when we first got married, we said, we'll never leave California, <laughs> and then we couldn't wait to escape, and now, when we have, his parents are still in Central California, when we have to go see them, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> and we're driving, we, when we come back and we cross, leave California and cross into the Oregon border, it's like, yay, <laughs> we're home. <laughs> Don't miss California at all. Not at all. Hot and smoggy. <laughs> she lives at the beach. Yeah, so but she's California. That helps. Okay. Only half the time, the rest of the time she's in Hawaii, so she can't complain. <laughs> So I'm curious, as you were uh, planting a vineyard for the first time and kind of doing some of these things for the first time, what were some of the other some of the challenges you saw that maybe you weren't expecting when it came to planting or when it came to 
any aspect of the business? Driving a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a driving a tractor was uh, was an adventure. It took me a while well, to figure it out, but once I did, oh, it was loves, great. He and, loves it. But he walked out of a courtroom, and the next day he was on a tractor. Um, he's a quick learner, so <laughs> that helps. But uh, I think for me, the toughest thing, because uh, I was up here two years before Jeffrey came up and or moved up. Um, the toughest thing for me is I felt I had to pick every single weed in, in that vineyard um, or it was going to wreck my plant. And it, it, it's impossible. You need a crew. You cannot do it by yourself. You can't even, my poor mother, I <laughs> solicited her, Mom, those Queen Anne's legs, they're poisonous. They cannot grow up into the cluster. We've got to get rid of them. <laughs> so I, I think it was just, we, we came from different backgrounds, and we didn't, when you haven't been a farmer, you don't realize what is involved. It is full time. And Jeffrey kept saying, oh, we're retired. I said, <laughs> I don't think so. This is not retirement. This is not how I saw retirement. This is, um, this is like every day, all the time, as long as you can do it. And what happened for me is I have such a, a grand respect for, for those people that come out and work eight hours every single day because I can't do it. I physically cannot do it. And so we treat them with, with great respect. We thank them when they you know, leave for the day. We tell them, great job. I want them to keep coming because we can't do it. I tried. Well, we, what we did do is uh, we had a couple rows that uh, we reserved for ourselves in the beginning. So we would have an appreciation for what everybody else is doing with the rest of the vineyard. We did. And those few rows Except for the hedging. were so I only got three so plants. Hedging. <laughs> no way. Yeah, there's a, there is a technique with the uh, with the machete I found out and uh, and I wasn't very good at it. So I'd use old-fashioned uh, uh, shears. I could do it that way, but with the machete I wasn't very good. No, Lane was laughing. It was it was pretty hysterical. <laughs> it was pretty fun. But honey, you didn't cut anything off. <laughs> <laughs> and the guys were laughing. They were having a good time too. It was like a comedy show, I'm sure. <laughs> but that's it. That? And and we've uh, oh. we've been doing this and. Uh, uh, we're downscaling now. The vineyard is leased out to uh, the gentleman who's uh, making our wine for us now, uh, Drew Voigt of Harper Voigt. And uh, we still make a little bit of Pinot and we're, we're starting to Chardonnay. Uh, make Chardonnay starting in 15 again. Uh, just a slight gap from 1988 to 2015. Uh, and there's a story to that. And I'm actually going to plant uh, uh, about a, a very small section of uh, Chardonnay grapes. Again, uh, and a little bit nutty, densely planted. 
Uh, and this time, I'm not going to use rootstock. I'm going to go uh, uh, self-rooted, which is everybody, think I'm everybody tells me he's nuts. Figure, given our age and stuff, if we get uh, flocks in 40 years, we won't be here to see it. So, <laughs> so what, what prompted the Chardonnay? Chardonnay was prompted by uh, the, the people, the Frenchmen who came in and consulted with Evening Land. Uh, I tasted the Chardonnays up here. Well, it's, uh, they were nice, but uh, they were okay. It didn't compare to anything I, I would I would have from France. And of course, you know, France had their terroir, that uh, that lovely, lovely soil. Tiny. Sorry about Chardonnay. Why, why you enjoy the Chardonnay? Yes, because I was tasting this great French white from Marceau and Chablis and. Uh, of course, the French are saying that it's their, their terroir, it's the limestone. And then, uh, uh, then the French consultant comes into Evening Land, and uh, suddenly he's, he's making this fabulous Chardonnay. Uh, and again, no secrets up here. They, they would uh, have it in barrel for a year on lees, and then spend uh, six months in stainless steel. Uh, and wow. Wow, what a what an incredible wine that is! So, well, our fifteen tasted like tasted more like Merceau mm -hmm. than anything we had tasted in in Oregon. So it reunited, uh, uh, reignited his love. Right. Other than this new technique, uh, and uh, as uh, Drew Voigt says, and it's rather humorous. So, we thought it was all the limestone, and it turns out it was the stainless steel. <laughs> So I've, I've fallen in love with uh, uh, with the uh, Chardonnay up here now too. So it's it's, it's great, and and uh, there's more and more of it uh, being made with that technique now of uh, of the oak, then followed up with the stainless steel. So tell us behind, tell us about the name uh, Toluca Lane. Oh. <laughs> well, it involves drinking. So, uh, we. Uh, we were with some friends, and uh, my wife's name is Lane, so I said, it has to have Lane's name in it. <laughs> Don't know and, why. Uh, so people said, okay, and, and we were going around and around. I came up with some really stupid ideas. Oh, and, awful. And, uh, <laughs> they we, were embarrassing. We, yeah, some really bad ideas. <laughs> and, and we were with people, and we were drinking all this uh, Oregon Pinot Noir and bouncing names around. And we're sitting in this beautiful home of our friends down in Toluca Lake, California. And somebody said, how about Toluca Lane? And it was just like a little light bulb went off. Lane's eyebrows raised. I said, can I borrow your computer? I went in, looked up Toluca Lane. And the next morning I was talking to the lawyer saying, this is, this is the name. Yeah. I love this name. So that's how we did that. <laughs> Well, and but it, it it worked out really well because Toluca Lane, Toluca Lake, is a very affluent neighborhood, and so we had a built-in. You know, we we would go to sell the wine, and we had a built-in audience that wanted to purchase it because they felt it was their personal label. Well, while we were still living down there and commuting up here, uh, initially, where we built the house. Uh, I would say most of our wine was sold in, in Toluca Lake to individuals. It was, it was very cool. And their country club took our wine for a while and 
once we moved away, it became a little bit uh, more difficult to supply people because I didn't want to go to California anymore. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the one hectare, the, the small size, and kind of the, the personal touch. Here. Did you ever think of expanding? Did you ever think of becoming bigger than a very yeah. small one? We, we occasionally yeah. would uh, source fruit uh, uh, from other people to see if we could uh, improve quality or if we wanted to increase production and we only tried that a few years and it never never really worked out we, we liked being small and uh, it, it it made it easy to market and enjoyable to be in the business rather than uh, consuming all of our time and because we do we and we still do mostly hand-to-hand -hand sales if you're huge how are you going to do that you can't and if, if you want to sell it um, at distributor prices, you can't do that either. You're too small. So, I, no, I remember you, many times people would ask if you wanted to be bigger, and you said, no. I like being small, we're, it works we're, out. We're happy with it. It's, it's, it's manageable, but not quite. <laughs> so I can't imagine anymore. Then you'd have to go more mechanized, and you have to have a payroll. You know, it, it's and we're we're retired. <laughs> keep saying that. I'm not totally. I know. That. <laughs> I don't believe it either. <laughs> but we're get, moving towards that a little bit more. But it's, uh, it's fun to watch the. Uh, Oregon wine industry grow and keep evolving and changing and I think the wines are uh, getting better all of the time. Uh, people trying different approaches, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, uh, occasionally you'll see a few people that are just like by formula and they never change anything but uh, so, so many, so many people uh, uh, with new ideas and sharing their ideas. I, I think that uh, 20 years from now, the Oregon wine business is going to be uh, uh, even bigger and better than it is today, and the quality will, well, will and be, if you uh, just be look better at than it The is. percentage of financial support that the wine industry gives to the state, it's amazing. It just keeps going this way. and. Um, even though we're kind of the stepchild, I think they're going to have to finally wake up and say, hey, we got to do something for these people because they are a support base for us. Um, and look at, look at what we're attracting. All of the California Cal people buying up land from California, moving. The well, French? Moving. The French. And, uh, and when the French come here, you know you've made it. Yeah, yeah and, and the B&Bs, the, B the hotels, the restaurants. Uh, as a, a friend of ours in the business uh, said, uh, when somebody from Oregon Ag was bragging, well, you know, actually, uh, there's more money made on grass seed than in uh, grapes. This is a few years ago. And, and he said, yeah, I, I, I can just see all those people uh, tourists coming in, uh, staying at the hotels and going out to the nice restaurants to come watch the grass seed grow. <laughs> I saw that. That was kind of a cute line. <laughs> Jeffrey, you, uh, you've, uh, tell us about your experience with uh, Calamity Hill. 
Oh, my. 11 years? Yes. 11 years making a Pinot Gris for uh, Tom and Marion Vale. It's been, uh, it's been fun. They, uh, they have a lovely little vineyard uh, and with the north slope. Mm -hmm. And when we picked Pinot Noir, we wanted a southeast slope, uh, morning sun, and that's what we got. Tom has a, uh, a north sloping vineyard where we planted some Pinot Gris. And it just loves that north side. I, I, I think it, it uh, has so much uh, character and so much flavor. Uh, some people that'll drink uh, Pinot Gris and it's kind of... Uh, Acidic a good, and bland. A good, a, good, a good wine for somebody that doesn't know a lot about wine or doesn't really... Uh, they, they just haven't learned about wine yet. It's, it's, it kind of is a innocuous wine. Uh, not so with theirs, and it has nothing to do with me making their wine. It, uh, it has to do with their vineyard. Oh. Or, or budding over there, some of their yeah. uh, Pinot Noir to uh, Chardonnay. I, I just, I'm starting to think that uh, as we warm up a little bit in Oregon, that the, the north side, which was always completely unapproachable for, uh, for wine grapes, may become uh, uh, very approachable, especially for, uh, for the whites. Um, it, it's much art, it's science. I, I, I think hanging out in the vineyard, uh, just walking the vineyard, being in the vineyard, uh, even if all you're doing is quality control after the crew goes through, you just get a feel for uh, the vineyard uh, and whether the, the fruit load is too heavy or too light. Uh, I'm just, I, I think uh, making good wine, whether it's white or red, comes down to balance rather than a, a specific number of uh, this number of tons. I think every vineyard probably has its own signature of of what the proper proper fruit load would be. Uh, if it's a vigorous vineyard, more fruit. Uh, if it's a very very light vineyard and you certainly don't want to have too much uh, fruit hanging. So uh, we've, we've noticed over the years that uh, adjusting for vigor and, and getting a good balance, and I don't think there's a formula for that. It yeah. just comes from hanging out in the it, vineyard. It's because every year is different. I mean, so different. You can say, well, yes, um, 0507, kind of similar, but they were different. Um, and so I, I, think, I think what you've learned is you just go with the flow. You, go, you don't try to direct the vineyard. You try and listen to, to it, you know. Um, okay, this year is, well, like this year's really hot. So the vineyard's going to be so much different. Um, and the fruit's different, and the fruit set's different. And we've got, out there we've got some really beautiful clusters, and then we've got some little tiny, tiny clusters. And, and, and Drew, uh, Drew and I, when we walked the vineyard now, uh, looking for the pick, it, it's so interesting. Um, I don't know what he's done in the past, but he's kind of adopted here at, in our little vineyard. Uh, I basically, as we start to get ripe, I'll maybe uh, run bricks one time, mm -hmm. uh, just, just to see where I'm at. 
And then after that, it's just walking along, looking, tasting. Taste. And it's the weirdest thing because you're walking along one day and uh, uh, you're tasting the grapes and they're just, uh, just, it just, it just, it's just not there. Not special. And then you walk out there one day and you taste the grapes and my God, it's like suddenly there's flavor that wasn't there yesterday. It's amazing. And that's, you, then you start organizing the pick Time after pick. that. And uh, that, uh, that's, that's kind of how we're doing it. Listen to the vineyard. It tell, and it, it tells you, I'm ready. <laughs> you, you don't need you know, to, to have a science degree to know that. Although, it although does tell you. my wife tends to want to pick so that we don't have to worry. She's, she's the warrior in the family. And I'm the tender. Well, let's let it hang. So it gets funny sometimes during a pick decision time. But when they, when, I, can, I can tell when they're ready, when they're really ready. I mean, it's like, take it or you lose it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, then uh, Lane and I, for when we were making the wine, Drew's making the wine now, but when we were making the wine, wine we were very minimalistic in, uh, uh, in the wine approach. You, know, you get the f clean fruit in, handle it uh, as gently as possible, uh, and we would go into barrel uh, dirty in the old days uh, where we'd have a lot of leaves and uh, it's kind of a risky way to do it but so, some of some incredible barrels of wine came out of that and, uh, we, we were tasting some of our 06 we don't have any more anymore but we have, uh, to go to friends we have to some friends it. that <laughs> still have some of our wine and they served us some of our old uh, reserve uh, 2006 and uh, it was like wow I, I, I never thought it would last that long and it was oh it was we did we did a vertical and we had some years some vintages and these other friends that we invited had other they filled in the vintages we didn't have and everybody said we know it's going to be the 08 that comes out on top. And they, it was unanimous around the table. 06, 06, 06, 06. So it, I think that's another interesting thing. I think Orkin Pinots last a lot longer than most people think. We always are shortchanging it, should be saying five years. But we have something you know, that's 15, 12 years old, and it tastes great. So. I think, I think it, it's the vineyard and, of course, the way it's made and handled, um, babied. Well, I remember 06 was a big year. I mean, a little higher alcohol, a little more of that. Everybody thought, called it California style, although it sure tasted like Oregon, but it, but it was a big wine. And I never thought it'd last past five years. And, but you uh, think the fruit's going to fall off and the alcohol's going to... And it didn't. Nope. It's still hanging in there after all these years, pretty well. I know. Who do we know that still has some? <laughs> there you go. Tom Vale. Does Tom, oh, Tom Vale. So what? say nice things about his Pinot Noir. You might be able to <laughs> horse trade for some of our wine. I haven't had his Pinot Noir in a long time. I need to try it again. <laughs> well, then do we do the, uh, the Disney ending? You know, the, 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 that's all, folks? <laughs> Unless you have anything else. A couple more questions for you, and then okay. we'll, get, we'll get, to get out of here. Um, 
I'm curious the relationship with Drew and the decision to lease and let him make wine. How did that come about? Well, uh, we were at a uh, Dommy, Dommy barrel tasting, uh, and everybody brought a little bit of their wine to share with other people. And uh, Drew, uh, who was, uh, I think, uh, at Domain Serene and still consulting with them as he was going to Shea, um, he, he uh, uh, tasted our OE and uh, uh, later sought us out when he was getting ready to leave Shea and go out on his own and said, I'd like to uh, make your wine. And over uh, uh, the course of a couple of meetings and drinking wine, I told Lane, I said, I, I know I'm giving up the winemaking at some point in time. Uh, and early. I really respected what Drew uh, had done at Domaine Serene and uh, at Shea. Uh, so uh, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a hard decision. And he's been doing a fabulous job with, uh, with the vineyard and making wine from it. So it's been fun. And we won't tell them about the, the hours of arguing. Oh, between us? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lane wasn't ready for, uh, for us to give up the winemaking, but uh, it was time. It worked out just fine. It, it worked out. But... She's happy now. <laughs> That's good. What do you hope happens with Toluca Lane in the future? I'm sorry? What do you, what do you hope happens with Toluca Lane in the future? Oh, well, we're going to keep going on for the foreseeable future with our uh, one barrel of uh, Chardonnay and one barrel of uh, Pinot Noir. Drew makes both of those. Uh, and, you know, we, we're involved, but uh, he's, he's Well, and we have an annual solstice event where we invite um, all of our special customers because and friends. they're special and be, they've become friends. So that's um, the closest Saturday to the solstice. And Lane puts we, out an incredible food table yeah. and we pour wine and I it's, a, food for it's each, a heck of a party. Wine. And we have a great time. And they really seem to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of wine goes up that driveway. <laughs> so it works. Um, and then whatever's left is for us. That works too. That works good. <laughs> and then we actually have, uh, there's a limousine service that oh, keeps yes. us in mind if, if they have some special people. Uh, and uh, he's only come here a few times, mm -hmm. but uh, they've been very special people, let me put it that way. Lane serves them food and we go through the wines and they oh. usually leave with uh, multiples and multiples yes. and multiples of cases and I, I think they appreciate that we're having them into our home you know it's not a winery um it's not some little room over here it's they're in our home well in the vineyard and, and the it, vineyard. it's not like they go down to safeway and, and can buy the wine so right so they say, oh, where can we get it? He said, we're looking at it. <laughs> Single point of sale. <laughs> what, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? Wanted to get into the industry? Ooh. Uh, well, our first argument was how to source fruit. Lane said, we can just buy the fruit and make wine. I said, no, uh, I, I, I want my own vineyard 
controlling the source to me is is really important. So my recommendation to anybody that really wanted to get into it would be to uh, start small, have your own piece of property, plan it to your specs, and uh, grow from there if you want to if you want to grow big. But having your own vineyard, where you want it, how you want it set up, I think that means so much. Uh, uh, down the line, it certainly has for us because we've watched, we've watched uh, people that were selling fruit long term to particular wine makers, and suddenly they have an argument over nothing, and and and, and they have now that that winery no longer has that fruit source. So you go in, you're tasting wine. Oh, remember so and so's vineyard? Do you have some of that? Oh no, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't do their uh, their vineyard anymore. Uh -huh. There's always a story you don't even want to hear it. Yeah, so it's nice having your own food source. I think yeah. it's, I, I think in the long run, it's played out well for us. It's our motto that we've lived with for since we first met. God bless the child that's got his own. And it is so true on every level, be it a vineyard, be it education, whatever. If you make your own way, it's going to be better than expecting somebody to give you something. Last question for you. Uh, we know this, is a, this has been a notoriously difficult uh, business for marriages to survive. So whenever we find a nice, happy couple who's coming up on their 43rd, 44th, 44th anniversary, uh, we'd like to ask, what's the secret? What's the secret to success in marriage and business together? Liking each other. What? What? Uh, we, 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 uh, raised we met, each other. we liked each other, we we've been friends ever since, and uh, so it's, it's easy to be uh, in business, and anytime there's been a problem, uh, we've, we've sat down, talked, uh, hashed it out, and, and usually uh, come up with a solution, and uh, it works out okay. Most of the time. <laughs> the only time she really gets upset with me is with her culinary background, she knows so much about food, and sometimes she doesn't appreciate my opinions no. when it comes to uh, telling uh, her me cooking. how to cook. Yes, <laughs> how to cut a lemon. It's like you know, I've been, I've been doing this for 36 years. Don't tell me. Don't tell. Me. I don't tell you what what you need to say when you walk into a courtroom. Don't tell me how to cook in my own kitchen. <laughs> so. That kind of evens it out. We both have our fortes. <laughs> so all the questions that we have for okay. you, uh, is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention here at the end? I can't think of anything other than it's just nice knowing you, Lane. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, well, thank you both so much. We really appreciate your time and your hospitality uh, and all your great answers. And we'll go ahead. You haven't had our hospitality well, yet. that's true. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. 
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.